If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome to the show. And for all of our regular listeners, thank you for being here again. And welcome to another episode of And Security for All. I hope everyone's ready for the weekend. As I mentioned in the past, I'm in the Midwest and we just went through another crazy snowstorm. We got hit yesterday. So crazy. It started out at 60 degrees and by the end of the day, we were down to like 10 strange, strange times right now. And as many of you guys know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We are, um, we put in cybersecurity conferences all over North America for heading out to Los Angeles for another in-person event next week. Our travel schedule's picking up, so it's a little stressful with all this crazy weather that we're having all over the world. Um, We are, again, going to be in Los Angeles next week, and we have another cybersecurity event, and we are putting that in a hybrid mode. And What that means is that we will be in person, but we will be streaming everything virtually. So if you guys would like to join us at one of our conferences, you can go find our events at futureconevents.com. It's really nice seeing people in person again, so I really am recommending that if you would like to see our events, you should, um, we're all over the country, it'd be nice to see you in person instead of virtually. We still have a handful of our virtual events that we are doing. We just did one this past Wednesday, and my guest today was our keynote speaker, and I'm so excited that he's taken the time to not only keynote our event um, this past week, but join me on the show today. Before I invite him in, I want to tell you a little bit about our guests. Um, I'm so honored to have John Kindervag here. And for all of you that don't know, he is the creator of Zero Trust, Senior Vice President, Cybersecurity Strategist with On2I2 Group. group. Um, John joined On2I2 in March of 2001 as the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategies. He spent the previous four years at Palo Alto Networks as their field CTO before Palo Alto. He spent eight years um, with Forrester, and he was the vice president and principal analyst and security and risk team. John is considered one of the world's foremost cybersecurity experts. If you Google his name, you should do that. You'll find that he is the creator of Zero Trust. He is, um, has a great model that we're going to talk about today. He was named in 2021, this is such a big deal, he was named the uh, CISO's Magazine Cybersecurity Person of the Year. John serves on the, president, um, the President's NSTAC Zero Trust and Trusted Identity Management Subcommittee. Um, the committee is creating a report for delivery, delivery to the president in March of 2022. Additionally, John co-founded the Cyber Theory Institute, the world's first independent cybersecurity think tank. 
John has a practitioner background, having served as a security consultant, pen tester, security architect. He's been interviewed and published in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Bloomberg, the New York Times. He's appeared on CNBC, Fox News, PBS, Bloomberg. Sometimes I hate reading these bios because I get so tongue-tied, but he has so many accolades, I have to read them all. John has spoken at many security conferences and events, including RSA, SX, SXSW, TorCon, InfoSec Europe, InfoSec World. John has his uh, degree in communications. So this week on our show, he discussed when the cyber war was zero trust. Um, if you want to catch that discussion, you can go to the FutureCon Events YouTube page and you can find his whole presentation and discussion that he did this week. So with all that being said, welcome to the show, John. Hey, Kim, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for being here. That was a lot, but I, you know, I don't usually read everyone's complete bio, but you have too many great things that you've done. I had to try to get through that. So thanks well, for th being here, John. Thank you. Appreciate that. So John, um, before, you know, congratulations to all your, you know, success. But before we dive into talking about Zero Trust, let's talk about you and your journey and how you became the creator of Zero Trust. I think it's pretty cool to Google your name or to Google Zero Trust and your name comes up. That's a pretty cool thing that you're on my show. And yeah, that that's a big deal. So, John, were you as a kid like someone that just didn't trust anyone? No, no. I mean, actually... You know, human trust and digital trust are two separate things. So I'm actually a very trusting person in real life, probably too much so. Uh, and, uh, you know, human interactions are, are super important to me in the way they work. But I've, I've been around for so long that the when people started injecting trust into digital systems, you know, because trust is a human emotion, right? So suddenly we're talking about all these trusted systems and it was actually always a joke and no one got the joke. So I just, uh, when I had an opportunity at Forrester to kind of look at what are the fundamental flaws in uh, the system that we now call cybersecurity, because in 2008, when I started this journey, it wasn't cybersecurity. It was information security, which was probably a better term. I mean, have you ever, ever asked yourself, what's a cyber and why are we supposed to secure it? I mean, these are some of the things that are actually pretty important. Uh, when we get into the nuances of language and, and things. And so uh, I realized that this trust model that we have, where we talk about trusted versus untrusted systems, was the fundamental problem. And if we got rid of that, a whole lot of data breaches wouldn't happen. You know, things like Snowden and Manning, uh, I call those two, two, two people uh, the, the Beyonce and Madonna of cybersecurity because they're one-word people right? They're the only one word people we have in our industry. If I say Snowden, I say Manning. If you're in cybersecurity, that just, there's a whole backstory that you know about that. And um, what they exploited was the trust model. They didn't have any sophisticated tooling or anything. They just exploited the trust model. And so I've been fighting against this trust model actually for much longer than my time at Forrester. I used to be a, a security engineer an architect and I would install firewalls that had this trust model where you would have to arbitrarily give an interface a trust level and I was like nah, this is a bad idea because it really messes with policy and and, and really opens up uh, people's networks but for some reason uh, people really fought against getting rid of of the word trust people have a love affair with it so when you um 
so this was like 2011. Is that correct? Is that correct? Did no, you... 2008. I started the research and gave the first speech. I did two years of primary research and I wrote the first report, which was called No More Chewy Centers. Uh, that was published in September of 2010. So what was there before Zero Trust? There was just uh, networks with a whole bunch of security stuff glommed onto it. So how did you even arrive at, I mean, because now Zero Trust, I mean, everyone hashtags it. We use it every day. It's just, it's, it's just what we say. So I, we're going to get into more about how do you, and I love your five step, you know, your five step, how to get there. And I love your analogy and at our event, how you actually use the steps, you use physical steps to show people how to get there, but we'll table that for a minute. How did Zero Trust, how did those words even, you know, how did you get there? And it's just amazing what you've done. Well, for people in the crowd who've ever installed a firewall, you know, there's interfaces and the, they're, they're, you, usually there's an untrusted and a trusted interface. Uh, the untrusted interface goes to the internet. The trusted goes to your main internal network. And then if you set up a different set of DMZs or other interfaces, you have to give them a, a trust level arbitrarily. So generally there's a, the, the internal network has the highest trust level 100. So it's a scale of zero to 100. And uh, the external interface has a trust level of zero. And then the intermediate ones, you know, you might have one that says 49, trust level 49 and trust level 51. That's typically how I would do it to control the flow of packets. And I, I realized that all, tr there shouldn't be trust. It should all, every interface, every packet should have trust level of zero. And so that's how, zero, you know, what's the trust level that you should give to any packet, any interface, uh, any device? Well, the trust level should be zero. We should get rid of trust. No more trust in digital systems. So is zero trust possible? I mean, how? how... Oh, not only is it possible, it's widely adopted. It's just that uh, a lot of people haven't heard about it because, you know, there's a there's a there's a the proverbial iceberg. The stuff that you can see, you know, publicly is, is the tip of the iceberg. And down below it, there's a huge iceberg of all the things that I've done and other people have done that we can't talk about. Because I used to joke that Zero Trust has a lot in common with um, with the movie Fight Club. And the first rule of both of them is you don't talk about it. You don't talk about Fight Club and you don't talk about Zero Trust because people used to believe that if they let people know they had a Zero Trust environment or a Zero Trust network, that they would become a target for attackers. And now with the presidential executive order of last May saying that all U.S. government agencies should move towards a Zero Trust architecture, that has changed the incentive so more people are willing to talk about it. But the, it's... There's massive amounts of deployment. I mean, I am aware of, uh, of zero trust environments on every single continent. There is a zero trust network in Antarctica. So uh, Ralph Polk, thanks for joining the show, said, seems like defense in depth going into further depth. Well, you know, I always kind of jam on defense in depth. My friend Rick Holland, who was also a, an analyst at Forrester, he's over digital shadows now. He would say defense in depth is really expense in depth. Uh, you spend money on on things you don't need because you, uh, uh, with 
that you don't have, you don't have that money because you don't know what you're protecting. And zero trust focuses on what we're protecting. This is what we call the protect surface. So defense in depth is taking a shotgun, loading it with a double lot uh, buck and, and closing your eyes and firing a shot and hoping that you might hit something, right? And zero trust is much more targeted, much more specific, focusing on what do we need to protect? The first question of zero trust is what are you trying to protect? Not which technology should you uh, deploy? When I first started FutureCon, um, you probably know Chase Cunningham, and he was uh, doing a lot of helping us with a lot of social media. So he kind of threw, he, he got zero trust in my head, you know, so everything we do always will have that hashtag. So did you work with him over there as well, or were you already gone by then? Well, no, the backstory of us is much deeper than that. I met him when he first got out of the Navy and gave him his first ever speaking slot. Uh, at, in public um, for a Forrester event, one of the hackers versus executives things. And then we became close friends and and I tried to get him to come on to Forrester once and, and uh, he kind of backed away. And so when I s said I was leaving, I told Forrester uh, I wanted Chase to replace me. He was my hand-picked replacement and we're very good friends. We served together uh, on the... Um, on the Cyber Theory Institute, the think tank that I co-founded, and we're going we're going to be in San Antonio next week shooting a video on zero trust for OT and uh, industrial controls and SCADA and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we're 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 very close. He's one of my best friends. Oh, awesome! I had no idea of that, and he, uh, yeah, we. We well, he doesn't want to admit that he knows me. So. <laughs> Chase has been on the show lots. He's done keynote speakings. I haven't talked to him for a while since he left Forrester. So I know he's out there just like you, you know, doing all the good deeds out there. Yeah. So, um, but again, I just had to say that because that's kind of who jammed that down my throat. Zero trust, zero trust. So Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. And yeah. uh, uh, I'm glad he did that because, you know, we're – Zero Trust and all the, the people who are practicing it are making a real difference. You don't see a presidential executive order uh, issued like this unless really good things have been happening in the background. And so um, it's, it's, it's not something that's aspirational. It's something that's being done. It's a strategy, and it's being used by tons of organizations all over the world and it resonates up to leadership. I mean, I have had these conversations to members of boards of directors, CEOs, uh, all kinds of, of people who are very powerful, who, who really control their companies or their agencies, and they get it. And so it's important to, be, to have a message that resonates up that high. Well, let's start talking about Zero Trust, and let's talk about your trust architecture and the five steps. And I want to let our listeners that are on LinkedIn Live, please feel free to ask any questions. We are going to talk until about three minutes uh, before the hour. So don't start asking questions right at the end of the show because we won't have time to take them because we are um, airing live on Voice America. So um, let's just start with your five steps and, and, and just let's, I'll let you take the lead on that. Right. So what happened was, as I was working on all the very first zero trust architectures, I mean, all of them, 100% of the early ones I did, 
because there was no one else who was doing it and everybody else thought I was insane. So the few people who got it really got it. And then I would do a lot of consulting work and design work. And, and as I was thinking back, you know, somebody asked me, I mean, is there, is there a way to concisely articulate what you do? And I look back and I realized there were five steps that were common among all the things that I had done. And, and so it, it starts with defining your protect surface. If you go back to the early reports, I, I said, define your, your data. And then I got some pushback from people who said, well, I don't want to protect my data. I want to protect this particular asset or, you know, like a, um, I was working on a project for oil rigs in, 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 you know, deep sea oil rigs. Well, we need to protect the computers that run the oil rig. Okay, well, that's, yeah, it's data kind of, but I get, I see what you're saying. So I expanded that concept to protect design uh, or define your protect surface. What do you need to protect? That's the fundamental question you ask. And the answer is you protect a single DAS element. So DAS is an acronym that I created to help everybody remember what they should protect. It stands for data, applications, assets, or services. You protect your sensitive data, your sensitive assets, your sensitive apps, your sensitive services. And so you take a single DAS element and you put it into a single protect surface because you're going to build zero trust out one protect surface at a time. Zero trust is incremental, it's iterative, it's non-disruptive. So it's not binary. You're not trying to do everything all at once, right? And so you, you, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And in the keynote that I did for you this week, I showed uh, the Leeson Fjorden uh, stairs, the Fiori stairs at Leeson Fjorden, Norway, which there's a, the world's longest wooden staircase is there, 4,444 steps. And they were built in the early 1900s at the turn of, of the last century so that they could carve out this mountain uh, on an island in the middle of a fjord for a hydroelectric power plant. And they had to do it by hand. So every day people carried really heavy things up these 4,444 steps. And as I was looking at those, I thought, man, how would you ever do that? Like, I couldn't convince myself to walk up the steps carrying nothing. And, and yet here's somebody whose entire job is doing that. And I realized you're looking at the first step and the second step and the third step. And you're not thinking about even the 100th step or the 200th step. You're thinking about the very next step. So that's what we're trying to do. Think about the next step. So you're going to define your protect surface. So I'll shrink down the attack surface down orders of magnitude to very, something very small and easily known. Let's not worry about the whole attack surface. Let's worry about the thing we protect, the protect surface. That's the first step. The second step is you map your transaction flows. How does the system work together as a system? That's a really important question because if you don't know the answer to that, you can break things. And I put that in there because I saw that things were getting broken. I would, we would be in the middle of a project and somebody say, hmm, here's an old server. It probably doesn't do anything. We'll take it out. And boy, that was a critical device and no one knew how the systems were built, right? So you, you, we're, we're at a time in history where the systems you're working on, you probably didn't build. And so you need to understand how they work. And, and, and a lot of organizations don't. And then uh, the, the third step is that's when you put 
the architecture together. That's when you design the architecture and decide on the technology. Everybody wants to start with the technology. Where do I put widget X? Where do I put product Y? And when I'm in meetings, I'll ask, well, what are you trying to protect? Because that's completely dependent upon the thing you're trying to protect. But we're so taught to think about reference architectures and technologies and not the stuff we're protecting. So we build these networks that have a bunch of round holes, but the business says, oh, I, I have square pegs. And we go, wow, luckily we, we give away free whittling knives with our reference architectures. So you guys make it fit what we've built for you. And that's the wrong way to do it. That's why there's tension between the business and uh, uh, IT and security, because we aren't doing what they need us to do. We aren't enabling the business. We're thought of as the, the department of no. And so we need to become secure business enablers. And then the fourth step is you define policy. So Zero Trust has its own policy uh, construct. It's called the Kipling Method. Uh, it's named after a poem uh, that Rudyard Kipling wrote uh, where he gave us the idea of who, what, when, where, why, and how. So every culture, every language has the idea of who, what, when, where, why, and how around the world. So it's important when you're somebody in my position that you make things that, that translate across various cultures. And so uh, your who statement is who should have access to a resource via what application. And then you can say when uh, you can have time-limited rules, which we should have a lot more if we don't do that now. And then where is the resource located that you're giving access to? doesn't matter whether it's on-premise or in a cloud. doesn't matter whether it's virtual, physical. None of those things matter. And then uh, why is things like uh, cl data classification or any other kind of metadata that you want to have. You can do a lot more with this why statement than we do. And then finally, how. How defines the criteria that have to be met in order to allow the connection to happen. And so in order to access a resource, you might have to run through uh, some sort of IPS kind of functionality or, or a DLP functionality. So all of those separate technologies that we used to think about as separate products should be collapsed into the main uh, security technology that you're using. Typically, I call this a segmentation gateway uh, in, in zero trust terms. Some people call it a policy uh, enforcement point. I mean, it kind of doesn't matter what you're calling it, although it should be, it should have layer seven capability because otherwise the attackers are gonna be able to get through it. So you need some sort of gateway technology that controls access to the resource. And if all those things are true, then you're gonna allow it to happen. So Zero Trust is a very specific set of granular allow rules. Very few times do we ever have a deny rule in there. There's, there's a few outliers because there's a default deny for everything in the policy that you should be using in Zero Trust. So everything is denied unless it is allowed versus the old model is everything is allowed unless it's denied. And so you're constantly playing whack-a-mole and you never win that game. No one has ever won a game of whack-a-mole, right? Unless, I mean, the way you win the whack-a-mole is you just get a great big uh, mallet that hits everything all at the same time. So you, you, you change the rules of the game. And that's what we're doing in Zero Trust. So, um, uh, you know, you, you have very specific sets of allow rules. And the important thing to remember is that all bad things happen inside of an allow rule. I say a lot, a lot of people in security operations doing investigations on why they denied something. We need to investigate that. We denied it. No, you don't. It didn't happen. 
So why do you care? Dig deep into those allow rules because that's where the bad things happen. And so we let a lot of bad things come into our environments because we're afraid we're stop, we might stop a good thing. And then we try to deny all that stuff and it just doesn't work. You have to have, some people call it a positive enforcement model, right? But just granular allow rules, that's all you should have in your policy. And then- so, the, Sorry oh, about that. Go ahead. I was just gonna give you a minute to breathe so you could take a drink, but I uh, ah. wanted to, uh, Jonathan Kimmett, welcome some of our uh, listeners out there. Is um, Thanks for tuning in again. And Karen said, uh, Karen's actually going to be the, uh, she's sitting on a panel next month, but she said, Kim always gets the best speakers. I'm very lucky to get the speakers that come on the show. And she wanted to know if uh, she could get a recording of this talk. This talk on LinkedIn will, um, it, it'll air again after the show's over, but you can always go to Voice America on the Business Network and find and Security for All, and you can find all of our past speakers and also on FutureCon events. Um, if you go to their YouTube channel, you can find all of our past speakers. And John was, <clears throat> for the late listeners, John was our keynote speaker this week. You can um, find his talk on the FutureCon website, on the FutureCon YouTube channel. So, um, so when you when you were talking, John, going back to step four and integrating the business sector with the tech people, I mean, that seems to be obviously a huge challenge. What's your advice for, you know, for companies out there to be able to, you know, make that a seamless process? You have to enable communication. So I always recommend that organizations create a zero trust center for excellence where they bring not just technologists together, but business leaders to drive that. You know, you have to, the first, the first design principle in zero trust is focus on the business outcomes. What is the business trying to achieve? That's all that matters. Sometimes we get it into our head that this is technology for technology's sake and oh, isn't it cool? But if it's not driving business forward, it's not very useful. And, and so this is the key thing. Uh, you know, business leaders typically want three things. I will boil it down from tons of research I've done. They want three things. They want to increase revenue, increase profitability, and then stop data breaches. Those are, or stop data exfil. Those are the three things that they care about. The only thing they care, they really want from cybersecurity is don't let our data get out, right? Don't let our data get stolen. Don't let our intellectual get, property get stolen from our competitors. Don't let a data breach happen where suddenly we're a headline and, and, and now we have to be investigated for some breach of compliance. That's the stuff that they care about. And they don't care how we get there necessarily. They're not very much tied into the technology. And that's why Zero Trust as a strategy helps them understand what they need to do and how they can empower their technologists to do the right thing. So... Again, I mean, when you go back to zero trust and you say never trust, always verify, and that seems so simple, but then you break it down into your five steps. And do you believe that your five steps is still hard to, you know, achieve? No, no. I mean, I, one of my clients said it best. We spent more time arguing about zero trust than we did deploying the first zero trust environment. So what um, are some of the, you know, we always hear about the negative stuff. In, the, in our industry. And I, you know, you've already talked about some of the positive things happening with, you know, um, this, this 
with what happened with the president and people saying that companies should have a zero trust policy, what are some of the other positive things that you're happen, seeing happen when companies are implementing zero trust? Uh, well, I think the first thing is leadership can understand the value of uh, the cybersecurity program and IT overall. So it actually makes it easier to get budget. You know, everybody complains about budget, but the, you will get budget if you can demonstrate the value to leadership, but you haven't been speaking leadership's language and Zero Trust speaks the language of leadership. Uh, the second uh, positive outcome that you will often get is a reduction in costs. There's a huge cost benefit. There's a reduction in CapEx and an absolute large reduction in OpEx. So typically we'll be able to collapse a lot of technologies together and simplify your technology stack in a zero trust environment. And most importantly, because the policy uh, is so small, the operational overhead is, is very small as well. So it takes fewer people to manage the zero trust environment. Everybody just goes off and says, this is gonna cost more. This is gonna be more expensive. This is gonna be more difficult. No, it's gonna be different than what you're doing. But how are you making that, that statement? You know, that's certainly not something that I've seen. If I can, I had a client in, um, in the South Pacific, let's say, and they had all these different technologies and they, they had in the security technology, uh, they had uh, six different firewall brands because they were really into the defense in depth. And well, they aren't getting any value from the six different firewalls. So we collapsed it down to one firewall, uh, one set of management consoles. Uh, it was, you know, instead of managing six different things, you're managing one thing. That's a reduction in complexity by six times. And actually more than that, really, if you think about it. And so it took fewer people to do it. And, you know, it was a huge uh, hit because they didn't have access to a lot of uh, IT talent. And so you're going to see some of those benefits. And then one of the things that surprised me was, um, well, so I had an emergency call happen at Forrester that the CIO of a company that I had consulted on their zero trust environment needed an immediate emergency call. And this almost never happens. And so when it happens, it's always bad. So I was very much dreading this call, like get on the phone. You got to get on the phone within a half hour to this, this CIO. And so he starts winding me up about the, the zero trust thing. I just, I don't know how to tell you this, John, this is, oh man, this is, this is really hard. And I'm like, okay, just say it, come out, you know, just don't, and he's like, oh, man, and he's just going on. And I said, well, I had I had the the zero trust environment, the zero trust network audited for the first time. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, oh, I hadn't thought about auditors. Hmm. Did I really screw this whole thing up? And he said, I don't know how to tell you this, John, but our zero trust network had zero audit findings. And then he just started laughing. He broke out in laughter and he said, man. He said, the, the auditor said, well, we can understand this zero trust thing that you're doing. We could never understand all those Visio diagrams and spreadsheets you gave us. And uh, we can see that there's a whole lot of compliance things built into it. And then all the things that on our checklist uh, that, it, that zero trust doesn't do clearly aren't even applicable. So there are zero audit findings for this one environment. And he laughed and he said, if I would have known that I would get this kind of benefit from zero trust, I would have done it as soon as I heard about it. 
right? So that's just an example of how it resonates up to the, to the business. So when you Google zero trust, and I just did it, you, you know, almost every one of our vendors that participate in our events, you know, have a, has a zero trust, you know, product or story. So how do you, um, being the creator of zero trust, do you watch this to make sure that the same message, you know, with, with these other companies are being delivered and the same zero trust policy, you know, can you help us understand that? Especially because my listeners on the radio show, you know, they hear zero trust, but what does that really mean? And why, when you Google it, are there a thousand vendors offering it? So I give zero uh, cycles to what everybody else is saying because I can't control it, right? I can only control what I do and uh, what the people that, that I'm working with do. And so, yeah, vendors have tried to hijack it and say, here's my zero trust product. And I've always said zero trust is a strategy, not a product. And that's coming true. We're seeing that. And in fact, it says so in the OMB uh, gui uh, um, guidance document that came out uh, at the end of, of January, uh, Office of Management and Budget, which was a follow along to follow on to the executive order. So this is a strategy, not a product. And yeah, I understand why the vendors do what they do, and that, that's fine. And I look at all those people as force, force multipliers in marketing. Eventually, if you want to do real zero trust, you'll kind of end up back where in what we're talking about today. And there's some movements going on that are going to change that even more. So we're, we're starting to get um, get the momentum headed in the right direction. But you know, there's nothing that I can do. Uh, and people say, well, zero trust has a whole lot of different definitions. No, it doesn't. It has one. But um, people have tried to spin it based upon what their product does. So if your product does MFA, zero trust is MFA. If your product is a proxy, then zero trust is a proxy. Well, I've always found that a bit disingenuous. But hey, uh, you know, that's not, you know, I, I don't control it. I didn't write, write those messages. And so... Uh, but for the end users, I just want them to understand that this is a very specific thing and it's got, you know, it's got uh, definitions and lexicons. It's just a lot of people never read the actual stuff. They heard the term, they thought it sounded cool, and then they would invent something about it. And they wouldn't actually go back and do primary research. And as an analyst, you know, the great thing about being an analyst is you were taught how to do research. It's a little bit like being an old school journalist back when you did real primary research and you interviewed people and you, you, you looked at, at prior art. And that, that's what we did at Forrester. And, and, uh, and so when people do that, they'll, they'll come back to the right conclusions. Yeah. And uh, somebody, I didn't pop up over, their name didn't pop up, but somebody said zero trust is not a product. It's a strategic framework. And I think that is what, you know, when you Google it, it, it could be, you know, people might think, oh, my God, I need to go buy a product that's going to handle zero trust. So I love that you're defining this for our listeners out there because it could seem like it is a product. And that must really drive you a little bit crazy since you are the creator of it. Yeah, no, uh, it doesn't drive me crazy at all. I mean, it kind of used to at first. And then I realized, well, why would let something that I can't control drive me crazy? There's enough things that I can control driving me crazy. Why would <laughs> I let something outside of my control drive me crazy? So, uh, 
you know, that's, it is what it is, right? I mean, I never thought it would go like this. The first speech on Zero Trust was in 2008 in, on a, at a, a country club in Montreal, Canada, and there were maybe 10 people there. And then uh, the first speech after I wrote the report in 2010 at the, at the Forrester uh, Forum, there were only 14 people in the audience. So if you would have told me that, that you know, 11 years later, the president of the United States was going to issue an executive order mandating all people, uh, you know, all government agencies adopt zero trust for their cybersecurity posture. I would have told you, man, get back in your DeLorean, you know, go back to Hill City, get that thing up to 88 miles an hour because that's never going to happen, you know. And uh, but it did. And I'm as surprised as anybody. Well, um, Jonathan Luckett, he said, uh Hi, John. I'm a doctoral student in cybersecurity. My interest is in zero trust as it applies to consumer applications and services. Can you talk for a minute about what consumers can do to move forward a ZT environment that is phishing resistant? So um, consumers themselves can't do anything other than uh, use services that have anti-phishing controls in them, right? So, you know, and, and that's built into your your Gmails and your, you know, if you have a, um, a Microsoft email account, uh, that stuff is built in. And there's another question here about multi-factor authentication. And sure, you should use multi-factor authentication. We all know that. But that in and of itself won't get you uh, zero trust. Identity and MFA is consumed within zero trust policy. But consumers, I don't think consumers can do anything except try to use services and try to incentivize the people that they do business with to adopt some of these things and to, to uh, you know, to make their cybersecurity better. But that's a very, very hard thing to do. And consumers have no power in a distributed world where they just have to use the app, the website, whatever that that is... Uh, available to them and they don't get a, a say in even basic things like how their data is being used. You know, your data usage and your privacy is something that you should be much more concerned about than probably anything else as a consumer because that's going to uh, get you into some, well, I mean, there's some real uh, negative consequences, not only from suffering the consequences of a data breach, and when people say to me things like, ah, only a million people got caught up in that data breach, that wasn't a big deal. Like, yeah, that's each one of those records is a person, though. And we need to remember that. So human beings are involved in this, even though there are certain people who want human beings to not be involved in anything. Well, if we could just get rid of human beings and upload consciousness onto the web, wouldn't the world be better? And I would say, no, it wouldn't be better. It'd be a lot worse. But, uh, you know, we're all the reason, the only reason to do this stuff is to protect data and assets for the betterment of human beings and and the things that pay the bills for the human beings, which is their corporations or their government agencies or whatever. So w this has to be very human focused in your mind as you're going through that. So how would you, what would your suggestion be to the consumer and the people that are listening to, to the show? How did they protect What's your advice on how they protect their data and their privacy? 
um, were at the very beginnings of understanding how m much privacy is important. And it's very hard to control, right? I mean, your privacy has kind of been taken away from you. And so in some ways, you gave it up, right? When we think about social media, the minute you started take, tagging yourself in pictures on Facebook to share with your friends or your family, you gave up a whole lot of privacy things and suddenly you have all this facial recognition and misuse of data and, and it's, a, it's a big issue. I don't know that you do put the genie back in the box. You may just live with it. I, I really don't know. Uh, that's kind of outside of, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people thinking about these problems and I'm friends with a lot of them. And we have a lot of discussions, but it, it's really, really hard to control your image, your name, your data, when there's so many big uh, targeted ad environments, for example. I mean, you know, you, you guys have done it. You've looked at something on, on some social media site and suddenly here comes an ad for that same thing on Instagram or Facebook and you're like, how did they know that that's what I was looking at? And well, cause they do, it's what computers are good at. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's a bigger question than I'm, I'd have to have some other people on a panel and we could have that discussion probably. Yeah, that is a good question. Just, just for example, at the Super Bowl, the commercial, you know, that had the QR code, you know, and, Everyone, I didn't scan it because I wasn't by TV. If I was, I probably would have scanned it, to be honest. But, I mean, I think it was like, I forgot the number, but it was an insane amount that downloaded. So that's just a perfect example. Right. And consumers themselves, uh, they shouldn't be concerned about their privacy and their security. It should be built into it. In a perfect world where we had more, more corporate social responsibility and, and corporations felt more concern about their, their users, we would have better controls in place. And, and sadly, those incentives aren't in place at the moment. So I don't know what's going to happen in, in that world. That's, again, uh, something that, that is out of my control. So I'm not going right. to so worry about it. Going back to multi-factor authentication. Do you think that when, because I, I always, I'm always concerned about this, you know, where I bank and, you know, my corporate money is in a bank and when they call you, you know, if you're going to make a wire transfer and, you know, there's, you're, they're doing a multi-factor authentication. Is that a false sense of security for the consumer or do you feel like it's? A, oh, it's not a false sense of security. It's the best that they can do right now in terms of the interaction with the consumer to validate the identity of this of the user right so we want that user to be highly validated not trusted but validated so that's that's state of the art and you know it's hard to know where the state of the art is going to be because all the things you hear things about face recognition and biometrics and 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 all that kind of stuff and and there's unintended consequences of all those things. We have deep fakes now that can impersonate somebody's face. We, when, uh, you know, biometrics um, are problematic because your fingerprint can be stolen. The OPM data breach, the, the attackers who stole that, uh, stole digital representations of 22 million people's fingerprints. 
So those are out there. Uh, and then you see things like, well, one of my favorite stories is when Mercedes uh, in Germany tried to, tried to solve a problem they were having of car theft. They decided, well, we'll, we'll have a thumbprint reader and you, you can't start the car unless you put your thumb on there. That'll, that'll stop that. And here all these car thieves grab the people that own the car, cut their thumbs off thinking they can start the car, and they don't understand that the reader needs proof of life, meaning that it needs to see blood flow there. And so it doesn't work, so they throw the thumb away, but there's a whole bunch of people out there going, hey, how are you doing? You know, oh because gosh. they've lost their thumb. And, and it's the result of somebody not thinking about all of the consequences of something that seems like a good idea to them. So what I think um, you brought this up in the keynote, I think somebody asked you what's next in you know, the cybersecurity industry. I think that was the question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. What... Well, it was what's next. What's the future hold for zero trust? I yeah. think was the question. And my answer was, you know, there's not really a big evolution of zero trust that needs to happen because it's a strategy. There needs to be mass adoption of zero trust. And the more organizations that adopt this, the less of these problems that we'll have. When we had the um, the presidential mandate, or I might be saying it wrong, what are your thoughts? Do you think we're ever going to get to a point where there's going to be fees and assessment costs for business owners not implementing, you know, a zero trust? I would have no idea on that. I mean, certainly I have seen some inter interesting things happened recently. You know, I'm hearing that some cybersecurity, cyber insurance organizations are gonna mandate zero trust uh, uh, for people who want good rates. Whether that happens or not, that's more of a rumor. But New Jersey recently, uh, a, a court in New Jersey recently issued a consent decree against, I believe it was a, well, it was some sort of medical facility. I think they were a radiology organization and said they must ad adopt uh, certain uh, cybersecurity practices in line with zero trust. And they listed some of them, right? But they specifically called out and said, you're going to have to move towards zero trust. So that was pretty freaky when I, a lawyer friend of mine sent that to me. So uh, yeah, who, again, who would ever, ever thought, but these are discussions that are ongoing and I think auditors in general look kindly on this because, again, these are understandable things. It tells you what are you protecting, how are you protecting it, what is the policy, and so it makes auditing of these systems much easier because we're focused on protecting something, not focused on just deploying a bunch of technology at various places somewhat randomly. Well, I think what I was really trying to say is, you know, when maybe not mandated fees or anything, but do you, do you foresee it becoming a compliance that companies have to abide by or they could, if they're not compliant, maybe they are not, I don't know, what would the ramifications be of that? Well, I have, I have uh, clients that have it as an internal standard now. And so uh, if you if your business unit isn't uh, moving in that direction, you can get in trouble as a as a leader for that organization. I had one company that uh, uh, one company that I know of, they had a 
subsidiary or an acquisition they had just done and the people were, we're not doing that zero trust stuff. And then the only part of that whole company that got hit by a ransomware attack was this one that refused to go down the zero trust trust path. And the CISO was so excited that they got hit by a ransomware. He thought that was the best thing ever because now they're finally going to have to do the thing they've been being told to do for a long time. So it's in your best interest to go down this route. There's no real negative consequences to zero trust other than it's not the way I've always done it. That's one thing. Um, and that's probably the only thing that people can really complain about. Yeah. I, I wonder if things, uh, you know, examples like colonial pipeline, you know, would that have happened had they had followed what you um, suggest? Um, would colonial pipeline have happened? Uh, well, I think we can secure OT and ICS in a way that would have stopped a colonial pipeline attack. So, you know, that specific one, I don't, you know, I, I would never say that that wouldn't happen, but I will say that it can, you know, we can secure, um, we can secure critical infrastructure using zero trust and make it incredibly difficult for those kinds of things to happen. I'm never saying that we're going to stop all data breaches. I'm going to say, you know, I'm always saying we're going to make it really, really difficult. You know, um, my friend Richard Baitlick, who was at Mandiant and kind of was the guy behind the, the idea of APTs and, and wrote the book of Tau of uh, security monitoring, uh, Dow of, I guess I would, should say correctly. But he used to say, our goal is to increase friction enough that the attacker is going to move off to somebody else. And Zero Trust does that really, really it increases the the friction for uh, for for the the non-authorized non-validated user so high that they're going to move off to some other low-hanging fruit well and do you think that situations like you said when the CISO was happy that there was a ransomware because it finally turned heads or opened eyes do you think that these other ransomwares the big ones that we're seeing do you think it's making the business owners of, you know, the ones that are the low hanging fruit, you know, wake up and think, okay, we better do something. It could be us next. Or do you think people are just waiting to see if it's going to be them? Um, I, I think it, uh, there's a lot of wake ups that are happening and people are very interested in this. And, you know, the, they're interested in what they're seeing coming out of uh, you know, in the last year, you've saw, seen not only the, the executive order from the president and the OMB directive, but you've seen NIST, CISA, DISA, and the NSA all issue specific zero trust guidance. So that should clue you in that this is resonating with the right people. And so if you're not, if you're not at least thinking about going down this journey, then you're not probably thinking in the right way of modern cybersecurity. If you just want to dismiss it as a buzzword, that's fine. That's your right, but it's not in your benefit. So I'm trying to benefit you as a consumer of cybersecurity services or a builder of cybersecurity services so that you can achieve your goals, uh, your mission more easily than you could otherwise. So for all the people out there that may say, I need to talk to John, he needs to tell us how to do this. If they, because not everyone, you're not, you're only one person. So what, um, what I'm do you- I'm not normally one person? 
No, I'm saying you're only one person. Oh, okay. You I misunderstood that there. You're only one person. So I thought I was. You may not be able to solve everybody's problems. Yeah, right. You know, so what what advice do you have to them? You know, how, how can they implement this without having you walk them through it? Yeah, study that five-step model. You know, there's nine things that you need to know, the four design principles and the five-step model. I spent a lot of time making this really simple because, well, complexity is the enemy uh, of good and, and great. Uh, first of all, it increases risk. So if a system is pretty complex, I mean, in terms of how you think about it, these are complex systems that we're talking about, but you don't have to have a complex methodology to, to secure them. So study that five-step model and that'll, that'll help you. I mean, that was designed to give you, it's like I'm creating Lego blocks for you. You, you go and build them into whatever you want them to be. They can be a house, they can be uh, a TIE fighter or a Death Star Legos for Star Wars are still big. Uh, or, you know, I saw that um, Legos is building um, MRI machines for for young kids who are cancer patients to help them see what an MRI machine does. I think that is so cool. You can turn your Lego blocks into an MRI machine. Whatever you need it to be, let it be that. But it's about your organization and what you're needing to protect and, and how you need to do it. And so it doesn't, it can't be so prescriptive that there isn't an ability to adjust it for your needs. In fact, every zero trust environment is tailor-made for the thing you're trying to protect. And so it can't be cookie cutter. And so focus on what you're going to protect and that will tell you automatically how it needs to be protected. It will talk to you. The system will talk to you. It's pretty magical. So last thoughts before we wrap up the show, we're down to about two minutes. Is there any message that you would, first of all, I, all you have to do, you can find anything on John's just Google his name and there's thousands of talks out there. I Googled it before, you know, I got on. So what, what would your last message be to our listeners? I guess just open your mind to the concept, right? So uh, don't just automatically dismiss it uh, and, and think about it, how it's going to work in your organization to make things better and more secure. And, and that's all I can ask of anybody is to have an open mind about it. And is there one talk out there if they, because I know you do a lot of speaking, is there anything that would be the best? Well, the main one that I do for introductory is the When the Cyber War Was Zero Trust that I just did for you this week. So watch that. That was designed to answer all the main questions people have about zero trust in one 45-minute uh, or hour-long presentation. And uh, I've spent years crafting that story so that it, it could really – uh, get everybody where they needed to be to jump off to the next journey. And so that's your zero trust one-on-one course right there in an hour. It only takes awesome. an hour. Well, John Kinderweg, creator of zero trust. Thanks for being here today. Thanks uh, for keynote and keynoting our event this week. Again, for anyone listening out there, you can go to the future con YouTube channel and you can listen to uh, the 45 minute presentation that John was just talking about. Thanks everyone for joining us again next week. Uh, Jonathan Kimmett will be uh, my guest host while I'm out in Los Angeles. Everyone have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week.
thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.